0: Thank you again for being with us for another uh, podcast edition of the Beef Educator Series. Uh, Today uh, we have Dr. Ryan Larson, myself, Dr. Matthew Garcia, and Dr. Eric Thacker, and we are talking with Mr. John Ferry, who is a uh, kind of multifaceted beef producer out of Corinne. Correct, Uh, Mr. Ferry. So correct. Okay. So just to kind of start out. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about your operation? Kind of the the history of your operation, how it came to be, and kind of the people involved and and where you're doing it. Okay,
1: uh, I am the fourth generation. My son Joel is a generation, uh, and so we are uh, we we operate on basically on the Bear River Delta, uh, and. It's it, wetlands, is what it is. Uh, here in West End, Uh my great-grandfather came out right after the uh, the railroad. Uh, we did not come through Brigham Young, but we come with the railroad. Uh, he was a land speculator. Uh, the Bear River Delta is is an interesting uh, place where uh, there's, there's no rocks except for a few uh, gravel pits along the Washatch front, and it's it's kind of a poor man's imperial valley. It's all tile drain, uh, the farmland is, and it's flat as a pancake, and the ranching part of it, the farming part of it is, uh, unlike a lot of ranches, it's not the Ponderosa, it's very unromantic. <laughs> you don't see a lot, I mean, but it's wetlands, and so it's really interesting. we've been able to adapt we originally were with sheep and then we've gradually transitioned over to cattle in fact at one time back in the late 30s 40s uh my grandfather we used to own what is now hardware ranch and he sold it which he hadn't because it held on to it but yeah we used to we used to run up blacksmith fork as far as use and and uh, uh and use all of that area the operation today. Is it consists of a cow herd about 1,200 mother cows uh, operating mostly uh, within all of them, all of the summer range and the winter range, and, and so on. Is is probably I have two units uh, that we do have to truck about an hour, but everything else is trailed. Uh, we run on both sides of the Bear River as it runs out into the Great Salt Lake. Uh, the farm operation, which is all here close by as well, is about uh, 3,500 acres, of which we grow about 1,200 acres of corn, both grain and silage. Uh, there is a soft white wheat that we have as a cash crop, and then we have irrigated pasture and alfalfa. Um, again, all of that farm ground is mainly tiled, and so we have to. And it's, it, we have two pivots. And the rest of it is all, uh, surface flood irrigated. Uh, the feed yard is, uh, just over 5,000 capacity, not quite 6,000, I guess. And we do, we do, all oh, maybe four or 500 head a year of finish, of which the majority will go over to Hiram to the kill plant. And then, uh, I have, uh, the rest of us grow yard. We have, We'll take most of, uh, if we don't finish, we'll take uh, the cattle up to, well, I have different different uh, pathways. Uh, some accounts, there'll be cattle that go back to grass, and so we put them on kind of a school lunch, which there's a lot of uh, byproducts and, and that sort of thing in, in the ration. And then uh, the other cattle are on a background uh, a warm-up type program, and we will trade them at eight and a half, nine hundred 900 pounds. Uh, Scale-wise, we uh, are basically big enough that we deal with all of the larger operations in the Western U.S. in Colorado, um, and and uh, but and then we've had uh, you know a lot of these cattle are, are we have investor accounts where there's a lot of risk management, fairly sophisticated accounts, and then we have uh, ranchers that uh, winter their calves and take them back to grass and then we do heifer development on some of that and it's uh, and and the the yard is basically in the center of the operation with as we follow the bear river on the way out to the great salt lake the farm and the ranch are all intertwined
0: Uh, mr Ferry, one thing that if i recall you you mentioned the use of byproducts and what are some of you, you you've actually used some interesting byproducts. could you just tell us a little bit about some of those
1: well that's where i put my education to work graduated from utah state did a lot of uh, postgraduate work uh, one of my philosophies that i have discovered and uh, have promoted is cattle do not need alfalfa or wheat or barley or corn to be uh, to, to grow and to be prosperous they need the nutrients. And so my approach to all of that is whatever nutrients I can, I can, uh, harvest. It doesn't matter what it's, it, that's what I'm interested in. And so we have, I mean, I, I've fed uh cheese way. I've fed yogurt. I've fed cookies. I have fed, uh, Farms farm, a little goldfish, uh, Frito-Lay potato chips. Uh, I've got peppermint. Uh, we, we don't, we have some, we do some uh, uh, leasing, and so we've got some uh, on some of our, our farming operations. So we get peppermint and spearmint, and we'll take uh, the byproduct from that and make silage out of it. Uh, obviously, the mainstay, corn silage. Uh, we have uh, high-moisture corn as well as uh, dry-rolled corn besides the corn silage, grass hay. So uh, a lot of times, you know, it's interesting here, particularly in northern Utah, uh agriculture wise we're not really that big compared to say in iowa or colorado or texas but we do have a lot of food processors whether it be dairy processors uh, uh wheat processors in ogden Cache valley and so there's a lot of opportunity for byproduct, and interesting byproduct. a lot of times uh some of these places will call and say we've got this or we've got that uh what can you pay for it and so i'll run i've got i've developed an indexing program that will pit that against big uh corn or or mill run or one of those products and i'll say this is what i can pay for it give it a be a protein feed stuff or a or a carbohydrate based feed stuff
0: no that that's amazing i mean i think that's one of the things that um i think a lot of producers tend to forget is Know how resourceful we can be if we kind of think outside the box of certain things yeah
1: it you is know. i mean i've gone as far as i don't have any now because it's always interesting i can always tell when there's a new shift that's come on board say at Loft house or over at Schreiber's or whatever because they'll call up and say we had a screw up and we've got all of this discarded whatever in fact i just got a phone call from one of my vendors there's some pearl barley byproduct and some oat groats. Uh, just wondering, you know, what's it worth? What can you use it for? And type thing. And and right now I can't use any of it, but I get those kind of phone calls all of the time because two things that'll happen. I'm not, you know, they. I I've established myself as a source that they can let this stuff go, and they know that whatever price I give them, it's a, it's a number that I can defend. And I'm not, I'm not going to gouge them and not, you know, take advantage of, 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 of their predicament or their problem. And so, you know, the the products are out there and, uh, you know, you just, you have to be creative and recognize what it is. I mean, say, for example, something that's entirely remote. I'm sitting here right now at Farmington Bay. I've got about, I've got one herd of about 300 cows sitting down here and we're grazing a wetland plant. It's called pragmites. Ragmites to wetlands is an aggressive it's kind of like I don't know a combination of of uh, you, you name the plant uh, Medusa headry whatever it'll totally it's very aggressive it'll totally take over a wetland mm-hmm. but it's interesting because the vegetative uh, status of that plant it looks like a a wild version of sudan grass or sorghum mm-hmm. And, but if you, we, we've taken analysis on it and it's about you know, 11, 12% protein. Oh, wow. It's highly powerful. And if you get cattle that are grazed, that have grazed wetlands. And so they know where the bogs are and where to stay and where to go. And, and, uh, uh, they do fairly well. And so it's been a real interesting win-win situation because they, they this stuff will just totally take over and they have no way of controlling it. I mean, yeah, they'll do aerial sprays and they'll use the glyphosate. But the problem you have with that glyphosate it kills everything, including the the you know the the alkali bulrush and the salicornia and some of the, uh, the plants that they want to save. And so they you know if they spray it, takes out everything. And and so there's nothing growing there. And then because Phragmites is so aggressive, it'll be the first one to come back. And so they've been totally frustrated. And we've had uh, it's kind of like range management in reverse because the plant is so palatable, the cattle will, will bypass some of the other uh, uh, wetland plants that are favorable to uh, you know habitat and, and just uh, go after the, uh, the the phragmites. And we stress be stressed enough and pretty soon you start seeing foxtail or or uh, the salicornia or the alkali bulrush or round stem or some of these other plants that they want start showing up that the cattle really are not interested in. Hmm.
0: Interesting. So,
1: John, this is, this is Eric factor. So
0: from a range standpoint, you know, you're grazing grounds that a lot of people don't have a lot of experience with. So what are your, your biggest challenges with grazing kind of that wetland vegetation? You know, I'm somewhat familiar with your work with the Phragmites, but even your other pastures, what, what's been your biggest challenge with grazing, you know, kind of
1: marshy ground? Well, we have to have, you need to, first of all, start with an animal that understands what marsh is all about. Uh, the worst thing you can do is put a bunch of yearlings or newly weaned calves out on marsh because they don't know what it is, and they'll get in trouble. I mean, they'll get bogged down. I mean, we, we've had a few wrecks. I remember one time, and my cowboys call them duck farmers. Uh, some duck farmers called up and said, you better get out here. you got a problem. And I go out there, and this is like in December, and I've got, uh, I don't know, 12 or 13 uh, yearling heifers, replace my heifers out there, and they're up past their shoulders in mud, and uh, hypothermia is setting in, and I think we saved maybe one or two of them. Hmm. You get stuff like that all the time. And so you've got, you know, Cattle need to know where they can go and where they can't go. The other thing they've got to look, remember, is they, they've got to kind of a Fred Prevenza thing where they've got to know what the plant is. I mean, you take some cattle that have been on, and this happens a lot, uh, guys that have run, say, uh, up around Evanston or even out on the desert, out west desert stuff, and, and they're not wetlands type cattle, and so they'll bring them and they'll dump them in on a, on a, a pasture or a unit, a wildlife unit, and they'll have a wreck and cattle don't know what it is they 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 are trying to find the the highest ground that and and they won't get out and and get out into the the marsh and and, and graze and hustle and I have the same problem i I've, I've used to run one herd there at Pegram the just outside of Montpelier, and there's some hillside. And these cattle that I have are all flatlanders. I mean, they look at a hill and it just will be a mountain. They don't want to go up it. And so they've had to, you know, they had to trail and push, keep pushing the cattle up. And so you've got to have cattle that understand the terrain and the vegetation. That's, that's probably the biggest challenge. The other challenge you have on something like that is, unlike a lot of these other places where you have water holes, I got water everywhere. And so if you're gonna do any supplementing, uh you've gotta realize that, you know, they're not gonna come to a water hole because they don't have to. And so you have to uh manage that a little bit differently. The other problem you have is going out and putting a fence out across the wetlands. Uh I do a lot of electric fencing and you know, cost alkali salt flats and that sort of thing. But it's you know, it's it's a different you have to watch out for that. And and the other thing they have to be careful about, especially on the wetlands, is you need to be careful where you can go. I mean it's nothing worse than you get out in the middle of nowhere and get stuck. <laughs> and so horses horses uh you gotta be careful. You can stifle a horse pretty easily if, if 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 the rider and the horse are kinda naive to it. And and so you gotta you know, they're just things like that that just go with the territory that you have to be careful about. So kind of uh, the other have the other thing I deal with, and it, it comes and goes. Is uh,
0: uh, I mean, I
1: don't have here at Farmington because I'm so close to Bountiful. I mean, they do a good job of mosquito control, so I don't have to worry about that. But uh, horseflies they they you know they lay their eggs in the alkali sand and then they hatch, and, and horseflies are the carrier of anaplasmosis, mm-hmm. and so I've got to monitor that and and, and be careful about that sort of thing. But you know, you know, it, it's, it's every place you go has got quirks and and unique. But that's that's the challenges that I face as far as dealing on wetlands.
0: To to kind of build on that, you know, it sounds like you've you've had a lot of um, almost uh, on on the on the go learning experiences. So, you know, what what have been some since you've taken over the operation? What what have been some significant changes that you've kind of had to implement and what were the results and kind of the, the thought process behind having to make those changes?
1: Well, a couple of things that we look at, especially like we've had to get a lot more sophisticated in the, in the feed yard. I mean, my background is, is, is you know, my schooling and stuff is, is in nutrition. And so when I'm doing uh, feeding accounts, uh, closeouts, projections, all that sort of thing, uh, we've had to fine tune it. I do all of my nutrition work, my supplements, all of that. I've put all of them together. I've built my own uh, computer programs that tracks all of that. And, you know, it's it, feed yards. Uh, you can always tell a feed yard that's about ready to go out, they'll either guarantee everything as far as the cost or pound of gain, and they're, you know, they're scrambling to get accounts. Or they don't or they don't know what they're doing and, and they don't last very long. We don't guarantee everything, but I better be pretty accurate on my projections, real uh <laughs> they won't be back. <clears throat> and so th- those are is fine tuning that. And then of course we have our scale has I mean we started, you know, back uh, when I took over we were probably maybe four hundred cows and we had the main place was maybe twelve hundred acres and you know it's just grown from there and and the other thing that's happened is you realize that you can't do everything yourself and so a lot of uh what you have to do is you know you got to delegate and you've got to be able to uh have the right kind of people and a system of follow-up and and so that uh through them you get all of the the work done john this is ryan larson uh you mentioned earlier uh that you use some risk management methods. Could you talk us through how you manage risk uh in your operation? Well, I can tell you a couple of things that, that we do and and risk management is not only you know hedging and, and puts and you know and and well that sort of thing. But it's also in yourself uh, controlling and knowing what your costs are. And the other thing, and I guess you, you talk to, you know, uh, the, the bankers that we've dealt with over the years, they will tell you, and they've told us on time and time again, is our biggest strength is our diversity. Because we have, you know, like say, for example, this year, uh, we had that dry, uh, unusually dry uh, March and April which was a real killer for the wheat harvest. But it was great for the cow calving because uh, we had very little problem with ammonia and calf scours. And so one mm-hmm. offset the other. Uh, we've had this hot, dry summer, which is, I mean, you know, my winter rain looks awfully tough. But I've, uh, I've, my fourth crop alfalfa is uh, probably up to my knees right now. And so we're going to have incredible yields off our alfalfa. And so far we've dodged, you know, the two rainstorms we had this summer, we dodged them. And so all of that was sold as a cash crop to uh, the hay press and they turn around and, and uh, I don't need that quality of alfalfa coming back to the feed yard. And so on a hundred dollar a ton uh, basis, I'm getting back their off grade, which is, you know, which is is a good deal for me and so diversity is is one of our our strong points and and you also look at that as managing risk so i don't have all my eggs in one basket but at the same time i am diversified enough that i don't i'm not selling everything all at once but there's you know i try to set a floor we do a lot of forward contracting in the past we've done a lot of basis contracting uh, and so there's a lot of things like that trying to control on the buying and the selling end trying to control uh, uh, my costs and maximizing uh, my margins so john can i can i have you quote that to all the my extension presentations <laughs> that you got to know your costs cuz i i i think that's one of the simplest but most powerful risk management tools that you can have so how how do you how do you do you have a record keeping system or how do you how do you keep track of that on your operation? Well, a couple of things that we do. First of all, every one of my employees, they keep a log, especially my cowboys. Let me talk about them. In our operation, let me back up just a little bit, describe a little bit more. I have, uh, my, my responsibilities is dealing on the animal side. My brother and uh, my son, Joel, are pretty much focused on the wildlife and on the farm side. But in every uh, tractor, uh, the chopper, whatever the case may be, I mean, the irrigation records, it's all about keeping records. Now, like, there, for example, on, on the cow side, my cowboys, I keep a catalog. And so uh, this day they move, say, the replacement heifers from this, pasture to that pasture they write it down or like in january we fed 30 bales of grass hay to this herd or that herd whatever they did and especially when they turn in their time cards they there's a little narrative what did they do what did they do on that day and i go through and glean that so i've got another uh, program that i've developed that on any given day i can tell you what cattle are where on what pasture and as they track through the grazing season over the year I can come back and say, okay, on this particular unit, we've got so many head days or so many AUMs, and this unit, i got so many, and so you just, it, you know, record keeping is a day-to-day thing, and you, you've got to follow up with them. That's part of the follow-up, or well, I pulled the logs out of the tractor so I know how many hours were used, say, hauling manure or doing some chiseling like we're doing today or, or so on and so forth, the same way with with the irrigation you know we will have like eight or nine irrigating headgates open at one time and and we've got you know the maps and we keep track of all of that so that you know a field does, i mean or i'm looking at you look at our fields you're looking at like you know 170 different fields and it'd be real easy to miss one as far as an irrigation turn But the other thing that happens is i'm basically my own neighbor and so we're at the end of the canal and i can have like Eight head gates that are mine exclusively, and I've got to be careful because if I'm my own neighbor, I can. You know, if I'm not careful, I can I can short myself. I don't have I don't. It's not one of those deals where you've heard that uh if you share a ditch with somebody, you don't have to worry about taking too much water because your neighbor will be there making sure that you don't.
0: <laughs> no, so, so that
1: that 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 that's basically. As far as the record keeping, I mean, day to day, I mean, they, they keep the log and and I review that log at least once a month. So I record it and I accumulate that. I mean, they don't they don't assimilate the information. I That's what I do. I put it together. So like there, for example, this field, or that field, we know what the yield is. We know how many times it was watered. We know, the, you know as far as the soil amendments, fertilizer and all that sort of thing uh what it was applied and and it's just all you know they write that down that they put so many loads of manure on this particular field through the the winter time whatever i take that glean that take a soil sample and and uh so it lets me know for example where my phosphorus levels are so that uh, i don't get in trouble with don hall who's the water quality guy that deals with cables so john a lot, on a lot of farms and ranches, it's difficult to get people to buy into to keeping records and keeping track. I mean, how do you cultivate that so that everybody's on board with it? Well, you, your lights come on, I guess, is the best way of doing it. I mean, I've got one program that, uh, as far as my cow herd, that goes down through. I mean, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Harlan Hughes way back when, when he was at, uh, at Dickinson you know, with North, at North Dakota. Uh, and I, I, you know, of course, he's got his article now in in the Beef Magazine, but it's the same time before then, and he talks about the enterprises and profit centers, and you know, it's all the business of, of of doing that. And so I go down through, and there's there's certain sensitivities, you know, clear back when uh, uh, Jack Whittier was uh, uh, there at Colorado State, he did a study. They had like 10 ranches, 10 different, they'd had, you know, 10 different, different ranches, different sizes and stuff, and different practices. And you pretty soon you just start discovering those sensitivities, management sensitivities, whether it be weaning weight or weaning percentage or unit cost a pound of calf or conception rate or, you know, all of those kinds of things. And so you know kind of where it's at because if you don't know where your even is, you don't know where your margin is going to be as far as selling something, or and if you don't have that ability to say, contracts and and see an opportunity that is you know awaiting for you that you can do some forward uh, uh, positioning. Doesn't matter whether it's wheat or whether it's alfalfa or, or you know yearling cattle. So,
0: John, it it, it sounds like you you've really fine-tune this operation. You're you're really kind of looking at, you know, all the external forces that are influencing the success of the operation. But if you were to kind of look back, is there anything that you wished you had done differently or maybe implemented sooner?
1: Well, I tell people all the time, the thing that qualifies me for what I'm doing is I know a lot of things that do not work. (laughs) And always open to new ideas and, and new philosophies i mean you know this this grazing out on 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 wetlands you know on, on some of these units
0: uh
1: i mean you know duck farmers and cowboys don't like each other but we have found a synergism i mean you know because we i basically have grown up with it uh on our on the north side of the river on our side of the river and it's interesting, because you go there and you seek a win-win as far as what works and doesn't work. I mean, I you know, I remember when you know we thought uh, you know crossbred calves, uh, you need to get the biggest Charlet bull or Simmental bull that you can get, and and then all of a sudden we forgot about the birth weight. and, and so you learn about that, and so you back off from some of those things and start fine-tuning what you can do. And then the other thing you, you have to do is you've got to take time to look at the land and listen, because the land will talk to you. Mother Nature will talk to you. You've just got to be able to listen. I mean, as far as like when when I'm going to start calving or when I'm going to start, you know, as far as uh, on what, where do I want to have cows grazed at what time of the year? Worst thing I can do is try and calve out cows out on the marsh. If they, if they don't uh, break through the ice, you're going to get scoured. I mean, it's, it's a terrible place. Certain times of the year and other times of the year, if you can control the water, it's a good place to go. But it, you know, but you learn some of those things, and hopefully, I mean, I'm always wanting to learn. It's, you know, Churchill said one time, "I do not want to be taught, however, I always want to learn." And so, you know, that's part of of of, of what we're trying to do with everything we're accomplishing. Mean, like say, for example. There's a difference. Uh, we found a a the uh, a chemical company here in in Salt Lake, and their byproduct is calcium nitrate. Well, guess what? It, and and they they pay us to take it. Wow. And I use that instead of ammonium nitrate. And it's stable. It looks like it looks like uh, uh, sweet potatoes, yams. Hmm. And they bring it up, and we just put it in the slingers. And and you got to be careful. We, what, this is one of those things we've learned using that stuff. Uh, you do not want to put it when the plants are growing, the grass are growing, because it'll burn it right down to another. We mm-hmm. learn from that. and so We apply it, stay on top of the snow in January, where I don't have, you know, that when the temperature's not all that warm. I mean, there's, you know, there's stuff like that that you learn from. Um, you know, and so there's, I mean, it's just, there's things that you have like I so say, you got to keep your eyes wide open, but at the same time, you know, be careful that tradition doesn't dictate what you can and cannot do, but learn from the past and, and make those, those changes that are there.
0: Hey, John, just to change direction a little bit, you mentioned wildlife earlier. So how, you know, in terms of diversifying your operation, I know a lot of ranches have kind of moved that direction. So what does your wildlife program look like?
1: Well, that's the part, I guess that's one of the improvements we brought, particularly with my son coming on board. Because uh, a lot of times, you know, when you talk to ranchers and or operators, farmers, you know, they mention wildlife, and they just get that foggy stone face, and all they can think of is depredation, whether the elk are just in my hay, or those sandhill crane cleaned out my corn, or this or that or whatever. And so, you know, it, it's a business, and I I take a page. One of my feeding accounts is, is Desert Land of Livestock. Uh, uh we've been with them or they have sent cattle to us uh since 1983. so we've been there for a long time i've been in their backyard they've been in my backyard and you sit and watch their approach to everything and so we have turned the kind of a what used to be a nuisance or a good old boys club not really interested in getting any money it's a pretty sophisticated business uh, in fact, if you look at all of the enterprises, the wildlife enterprise is probably the highest margin. It's interesting where we are located here on, I mean, the the whole Bear River Delta Salt Lake ecosystem, Great Salt Lake ecosystem, we're an oasis out in the middle of the desert, and we got this Pacific flyway that comes down. I mean, like I said, I've got the refuge right here. I'm sitting here at Farmington Bay, and it's fairly sophisticated, and believe it or not, there are people who will pay big bucks to come out and and do some hunting and it doesn't always have to be a bear or a buffalo or an elk or a, you know a, a boon and crockett uh, buck uh, you know the the waterfowl hunting is is fairly sophisticated and you know we've got some I've, you know we in fact it's interesting we as as a ranch we bought a membership in, into one of the hunting clubs that that is not ours but it's, i mean it's you know, the membership cost is $80,000, and you say, why would you want to buy that? Well, we bought ownership into it, and also was a gateway to grazing on their place, and they have about, oh, there's about 200 acres of farm ground, which we are now running, and we we have stay say because we're one of the owners. Uh, we surround the Bear River Gun Club and see their membership, just for the membership, like $120,000. Then they have about twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year for dues. And it's the who's who across the country of, of uh, who are members there. And we've taken a page from that. We have, my cowboys call it the Duck Palace. We have a hunting lodge. And they come and, and you, you ask these people, why do you want to spend that kind of money? Where you say, well, we, you know, it's the one. some of these companies are, 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 are I mean, the owners are, are fairly well to do uh, and they have you know we've got a box at the, at the vivant margarina the delta center and anybody can go there and watch the ball game but to go into a goose pit or a blind on any given day knowing that you're going to get some action some shots that's priceless i mean yeah you can go out onto the public and you're going to deal with what we call the bubble hunters and the sky busters and all that sort of thing but i it's, it it's it's worth something to them and they're willing to have that privacy that escape to get out by themselves and and to get out on the marsh and have that kind of experience it's not about harvesting birds if it's about harvesting birds they can go down to kroger's or smith's and buy them a chicken and it it'll, it it'll probably tastes better as well
0: all right so we're kind of at the point now where I get to kind of ask my, my favorite question of, of this podcast. And we're, we're going to ask you to kind of play, play fortune teller for us a little bit. And, you know, I guess, I guess the question is, you know, looking forward, you know, what kind of challenges do you think that your operation will have to overcome? But to kind of accentuate that question, how do you think the next generation coming up behind you may have to manage differently in accordance with those challenges?
1: There's a saying that says that they're not making any more land, mm-hmm. and where we are you know where we operate, we're out in the middle of nowhere, but still at the same time, in fact, even as I speak right now, where I'm sitting here at Farmington Bay, I'm kind of out in the middle of nowhere. There's nobody around me within oh a couple of miles, but I can see all of the bountiful bench, and I can see quickly clear ends Salt Lake City, and so you know. Farming operations, ranching operations are, you know, the biggest challenge you have is going to be the economy of scale because living costs and all of those types of things, they're not going to go down. They're, you know, they're, they're going to continue to appreciate. The other thing that they're not making anymore to a certain extent is water. And the Bear River is probably the last undeveloped waterway you know, in the state of Utah, and the Salt Lake Wasatch Front, we've got, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's here or northern Nevada, or you see the problems and the, you know, the scars and the burnt flesh and, and hair of, of what took place in California, water flows to money. And so we're going to have to do things to protect those resources. If we don't, we're going to lose out to them. And, and we, you see that continuing pressure, whether it's in Politically, or you know, they change the water laws, water rights. I mean, you want to, if you want to put it up for a vote, you're going to get your head handed to you because we are, you know, basically less than 2% of the population, just through the numbers. And if they want the water, they open up their wallet, uh, you know, you're going to have a problem if you continue to operate here. And so that, to me, that's a big challenge. The other challenge you have is growth uh you know and and, and and not only, and I guess what I look at it's a challenge from the outside, but it's also a challenge from the inside to to pass a, a farming operation from one generation to the next, you need to have a certain scale, not you know if you look on paper, you know you know a farmer or a ranch may be worth multiple millions of dollars, but you know why is the family just barely getting by? You need to have a certain size of operation. And so if Junior stays on the farm, but all of his sisters, you know, they marry and they move off. And then dad, because he didn't do any planning when he passes away, guess what? All of the sisters and the in-laws, they show up and get they got their hand out. And then whoever has scraped and fought and dealt with uh, the elements and everything to try to keep the farm going or the ranch going, he has to buy out his sisters or his brother who's not on the farm or this or that and the other. And guess what? He can't do it. And so he has to sell it. And so the farm gets chopped up. And then when that happens, the only thing that makes, or makes any money or justifies it is housing. And so the farm goes by the wayside and families end up not speaking to each other. I mean, there's all of that kind of stuff that I think is, is, is tough. And you know, and you know, we're 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 dealing with that to a certain extent. Uh, I've just uh, in the last say three years, four years, my father and my mother passed away, so I've had to deal with my sisters and my father's wisdom, and he, he inherited that from his father. He was the only son, but he had some sisters, and then my grandfather, great grandfather, was the same way you better take some steps to protect that and make sure that there's a family understanding that the farm has to stay together. And you're welcome to come to the farm, but it cannot be sold to anybody but the other sibling who is there on the farm as well, or the other generation, and they can only pay, they're going to pay for it as they're able to, and not before, so that your hand doesn't get forced. And I mean, there's all, I mean, and that sounds like it's cruel and stuff is looking at all this money they're getting it's there but it's not and you know those who are not familiar with farming and ranching they struggle with that because they're thinking that they're getting the short end of the stick Well, yeah. just come out come out pull a calf in january in a snowstorm or or come and home manure when it's swap or you know whatever the case may be i mean farming and ranching Yes, you have to be business like about it, but it's not the most gentlemanly lifestyle. And you better be willing to pay the price to be successful. Yeah, I'm
0: I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's one of the major challenges we are dealing with, you know, with agriculture in general. And you know, I've heard Dr. Larson talk quite a bit about equal isn't always fair and fair isn't always equal. And that's right. And you know, and some of these succession plans You know, I think that kind of like what you said, I think it's almost an afterthought until we have to do it. And then at that point, it's too late. So I'm I'm glad you you identified that as one of our major challenges going forward.
1: Well, like you said, the non-farm part of the family needs to understand that, yeah, you've got this great resource that is absolutely priceless, millions of dollars. But at the same time, you need to have something of that scale to be able to, because the margins of the operation are just not there. They are not there. And, uh, you know, I mean, and it's not just, you know, unique with us. Uh, I, you know, I, I've, with my affiliation with Deseret, and then I've done some outside um, sideline consulting. I remember one time I had a meeting with John Creer. Who used to be the CEO of Farmland Reserve ARI? They used to all be together, and they used to call it Farm Management. And mean, they, they—they are huge. You know, one of the largest operating agriculture in in the country, if not the world. If you're to piece all of their their holdings together, and he said he told me, he says our goal is to is is a five percent return on our investment. Yes, land will appreciate, and it can. And see, that's the part you got to be careful about is you don't really see until you sell something, you really don't see that. I mean, yes, land appreciates. You can borrow against it, but be careful because what can go up, remember the early eighties, it can also go down. And that's what you can get yourself in trouble. And so it's just, it's, 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 it's secure. It's steady. It's reliable, but it's low margin. And so you have to, you have to be disciplined and recognize that. That uh, and so I mean, like I said, their goal was to be pickle pink if they could get a, off off their operation that they got a five percent return. I mean, you look at any contractor or or home builder nowadays, five percent return. They, they 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 have no interest in any of that. Not right. enough in there for them.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, and so you need to have a certain amount of scale. I mean, I I mean, I heard stories, and I don't know all the details. If you look at the margins that are out there, I mean, you know, for a family to be self-sufficient on a ranch, 300 heads not going to do it. 500 heads mm-hmm. not going to do it. You better be, you, you know, I don't know where the number is, but it's it's going to be maybe six, seven, eight hundred heads that to have a a respectable living as far as a, you know sustaining yourself.
0: Yeah, that's that I is mean, I, crazy. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
1: You see that, and so if you look at uh, what's going on with with, uh, farming and ranching operations, they're getting bigger because they have to have that economy of scale. Either that or what's happening is he's got 200 cows, but he also has got a job in town. Mm -hmm. And if you look, a real critical look at it, uh, his job in town is subsidizing his farming or his ranching operation. Exactly. And, and and they become weekend cowboys, and then all of a sudden, you know, the sophistication takes a hit, the tradition. I mean, I just roll my eyes, I see somebody that's, you know, a ranch that's got maybe three hundred cows and they're driving, paying for a sixty thousand dollar four door extended cab dually Dodge Ram truck, and they've got a a Wilson, you know, twenty foot Aluminum trailer they're pulling. I mean, I mean, I tell you right now, the farm ain't paying for that.
0: (laughs) Definitely not.
1: (laughs) So there's there's stuff like that that you you better have some discipline and recognize. You know, some of those things that are out there. I mean, just like the credit card commercial that uh, there's some things that money cannot buy, and for everything else, there's MasterCard or whatever the advertisement was. But but you got to you know you you got to be disciplined and and recognize that right and be willing to accept it and make sure that your brothers and sisters understand that when it comes to uh uh diversifying the the, the portfolio or passing it with one generation to the next
0: no i think you're exactly right i think you hit that right on the head um we well we're going to go ahead and wrap up real quick um you know, thank you again for, for, for talking with us. You know, you're sure. you're the exact type of producer that we think is is extremely valuable uh to these podcasts. We we think that you have a lot of information that can really help people out. And you know, we're really great grateful for you to for coming and talking to us again. Sure. Hey, thanks, John.
1: It was really good. Okay, very good. All
0: right. Thank you.
1: Thank you, John. One thing about all this that I can say, my last parting phrase, and doesn't matter whether it's you or if it's Dirk or Kerry or Dylan, we stay in touch. Absolutely, for sure. Stay in touch because there's always going to be a better mousetrap out there. I used to tell kids when I teach that class with Kara and also with with Kerry, they're, uh, now with Brett Bowman, that uh, your competition – it's not pork. My competition is not pork or poultry. It's not the Brazilians. It's not the Argentines. It's not the European. It's my neighbor.
0: Right.
1: And if my, my production costs are out of line with what my neighbor's doing, uh, pretty soon he will be operating my place. And it's just just the fact of life. Our operation, if you look at the where it is now versus where it was, say thirty years ago. We are now what used to be six different other operations, wow. and and the pressure be there as it continues. Not that we're aggressive and you know, like Lincoln says, we're not greedy. We just want to form everything that borders us. Well, there's there's some truth to that, and if you're not careful, and you're not competitive, I mean, the thing that a lot of times. That will dictate the market price that you're going to get is your break-even, and if you don't know number one what that break-even is, and you don't know where your costs are, and you're out of line, but your neighbor does, you're going to sell at a loss and blame the market that you got ripped off, and before you have any chance of doing anything. So,
0: no, so that's, that's what my
1: competition. Is. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, like I said, stay in touch.
0: All right. Thank you again, John. We really appreciate it. Thank thank you, John. Keep it. Keep it. See ya. Bye.